morning everyone and welcome if you were here earlier then uh, might be time for a hot cross bun we're going to make a start you know that in the gospels it says that on the day that Jesus was crucified at noon the sixth hour uh, the darkness fell over the land that the sun stopped shining and stayed like that till three o'clock in the afternoon when Jesus actually died. And it's amazing to think that the created order itself was affected, that the actual physical world was impacted by the death of Christ at that time. And it makes, I guess it makes us think, well, how did anyone miss it? If you were around at that time, how, how could you miss that? I mean, it went dark for three hours in the middle of the day. That, surely that would raise a question. But people did miss it. Um, so it's incumbent on us today to not miss it. Because we can uh, equally miss things. So can I encourage you uh, to make a decision to enter the story with us today? We know this story well and... Um, I'm guessing most of us have heard it many times. But let's enter the story today and, um, and listen um, and sing, pray and um, allow God to do with us today. So I might just pray on our behalf if that's okay. Father, we just thank you for this day. We thank you that you're at work. We thank you that what you did 2,000 years ago is absolutely applicable right now today so we want to worship you for that this morning amen can i get you to stand and we'll make a start Hold and nail him down so that he 
Sometimes 
Gethsemane, Jesus has been betrayed by one of his disciples, Judas. He is now arrested and taken by Jewish leaders before the Roman governor Pilate. The book of John chapter 18 says this, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. In the very early hours of the morning on the first Good Friday, Jesus is put on trial by the Jewish leaders. Moments before, he had been betrayed into their hands by one of his closest friends. Betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Betrayed by greed. Jesus' trial is illegally rushed through in the early hours of the morning when the official courts were not in session. There were no formal charges brought. There are no witnesses allowed for the defence. False witnesses are manufactured. It is a lynch mob, a miscarriage of justice, a kangaroo court. The Jewish leaders are out for blood. 
They are out for blood because Jesus had been publicly scathing in his assessment of their leadership. He said that they were lovers of money, lovers of public adulation, not lovers of God. They're jealous of Jesus' popularity and his influence over the people. Jesus challenged the very fabric of Jewish society and religion. He claimed to be the Son of God who could forgive people their sins without the need for the customary Jewish sacrifices. The Jewish leaders have no real charge to pin on Jesus, and so they say he must die for this claim to be the Son of God, which under Jewish law is blasphemy and must be punished by death. But if Jesus really is the Son of God, then how can he be guilty of blasphemy if he's telling the truth? It's no blasphemy to say that God is your father if he really is your father. In fact, it would be a blasphemy to say that he wasn't. The Jewish leaders convict Jesus for telling the truth. Now, throughout Jesus' arrest and trial, it looks as though the opponents of Jesus are the ones in control. Jesus is the one in chains. Jesus is the one in the dock. But in reality, it is Jesus and his Father who are the ones in control. Jesus could have said nothing and gone free, but he goes to the cross by his own words. We see that in John chapter 18, beginning at verse 3. We read this. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am, Jesus said. If you were a Jew and you wanted to claim to be God, you would say, I am. That was God's name in the Old Testament. And this is exactly what Jesus is claiming because we read, When Jesus said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. The arresters are arrested in their tracks when they try to arrest Jesus. Jesus' enemies are powerless when confronted with the power of God. There was no force on earth strong enough to take Jesus against his will. The only way he was to be taken was if, if he was going to allow himself to be taken. He voluntarily lays down his life for the sin of mankind. Now, Jesus is so in control that he determines the kind of death that he will die. A thousand years before Jesus is born, God prophesies that the Messiah will have his hands and his feet pierced. We see that in Psalm 22. They pierce my hands and my feet. This was predicted 
hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented. If Jesus was killed under Jewish law, he would have been stoned. But in the first century, the Jews were occupied by the Romans, and the Jews were obliged to have the occupying Romans conduct their executions because they were in charge of law and order. And so the Jews send Jesus to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. And under Roman law, perpetrators of serious crimes are crucified. Their hands and their feet are pierced by nails. Nothing took place that God had not sovereignly planned. By murdering Jesus, his opponents fulfill the very event that God had planned before the beginning of time. Now Pontius Pilate, he stands over Jesus with the authority of the most powerful empire on the planet. Jesus stands before Pilate with this claim. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus makes Pilate palpably uncomfortable, doesn't he? You see, Jesus, as he stands before Pilate, he is, he's probing Pilate's soul. Pilate must decide whether he loves the truth or whether he loves lies and darkness. We heard in our reading, Pilate said those famous words, what is truth? He says, I find no basis for a charge against him. The evidence points to the fact that Jesus is innocent. Pilate himself acknowledges that, but if he lets Jesus go, a riot will break out. Word will get back to Caesar that Pilate cannot control things. He will lose his position. And so given the choice between an innocent, uh, a insignificant Jewish man dying and Pilate's own career taking a nosedive, well, Pilate chooses for Jesus to die, even if he is innocent. Pilate ignores the truth and he caves in to the pressure of the crowd, doesn't he? Pilate sacrifices Jesus on the altar of self-interest. Truth is not his highest priority. He's more concerned with keeping the status quo, with keeping the peace, with keeping his job. So Pilate subordinates the truth to his own personal preferences. Pilate had the privilege of standing before the one who is the truth and who will later prove it by rising from the dead. But Pilate will not submit to the truth. Pilate is staring the truth in the face and yet he refuses to believe it. Pilate was not a skeptic, he was a cynic. A skeptic won't believe a truth claim until there is sufficient evidence. A cynic will not believe a truth claim even if there is sufficient evidence. Pilate doesn't care what happens to Jesus. 
And not caring about the truth makes you just as culpable as opposing the truth. Not caring about Jesus makes you just as culpable as opposing Jesus. And so it looks as if we're witnessing the trial of Jesus. Jesus is the one in chains. Jesus is the one in the dock. But in reality, it is his opponents who are really on trial, aren't they, in the heavenly court. They think they're judging Jesus, but Jesus is the one who will be judging them for how they judge him. Judas is more interested in money than he is the truth. The Jewish leaders are more interested in their status, in their reputation, than they are the truth. Pilate is more interested in his self-advancement than he is the truth. And the claims of Jesus go beyond the first century, don't they? He is claiming to be the truth. And so his claims confront each one of us. Every soul has to make a decision whether you will listen to the truth, whether you will be on the side of the truth. And we too are on trial in the heavenly court for how we deal with Jesus. Do you love money more than you do the truth? Do you love your reputation, your status more than you do the truth? Will you subordinate the truth to your own preferences? Jesus says, if you want to be on the side of the truth, listen to him. We continue on in the story. The book of Matthew, chapter 27, reads, Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. Who is Jesus to you? Is your view of Jesus based on your own interaction with what the scriptures actually say? Or is your view of Jesus what everyone is saying through the media, through Facebook, through TikTok or Instagram or Reddit or the internet or the news? Who is Jesus to you? At this point of the story of Jesus, He has just been sentenced to be crucified in a trial designed only to find him guilty. Pilate, the governor, as we heard, he could not find any fault with Jesus, but he was afraid of the mob that was in front of him. He was not interested in the truth, not interested in justice. He was only interested in placating the mob 
in front of him. And so this Pilate handed Jesus over to his soldiers to be crucified. And these soldiers, they led him into the hall of his residence, the praetorium. And the whole company of soldiers, they gathered around Jesus. What would they do? What would they do with this innocent man who's just been sentenced to death? Well, let's listen to what all these soldiers did to Jesus. They stripped him. They put a scarlet robe on him. They twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They put a staff on his right hand and repeatedly struck him with that. They knelt in front of Jesus, not to worship him, but to mock him. They mocked Jesus. Why would they do that? Why would they mock Jesus, someone who none of them had any personal interaction with? They never talked to Jesus, most likely never even heard of him. And yet here they are mocking the Son of God. Why would they do that? You see, I think they did that because they were just following the examples set by their leader. Instead of finding out who Jesus is for themselves, they just believed whatever high authority told them to believe. Jesus has just been sentenced to be crucified. And crucifixion is a sentence that's reserved for the lowliest of the lowliest in the society. In other words, crucifixion is for the scum of society. And here this Jesus, he was sentenced to be crucified. And so, in their thinking, this Jesus deserves to be mocked. They did not bother to find out for themselves who this Jesus is. Instead, they crafted, created their own image of who Jesus is, stripping him of his own dignity, dressing him up in the, their own image. Instead of Jesus' own robes, they put a scarlet robe on Jesus, their own scarlet robes. Instead of his own crown, they twisted a crown of thorns for Jesus. Instead of worshipping Jesus as their rightful king, they worshipped Jesus to spit on him, strike him down, mock him. All without speaking, all without trying to get to know this Jesus. Is that what you do to Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? Is the image of Jesus in your mind one that you have created? Created based on what you have received from other authorities in your life? You see, for the soldiers, their high authority is the governor, is Pilate. For us today, our higher authority could be celebrities, could be social media influencers, could be the government, could be our group of friends, anyone or anything that has influence in our lives. The rest of the world, they have no problem relentlessly mocking an image of Jesus they created. And most people could not be bothered to find out who this Jesus is for themselves. They blindly follow the opinions of people around them. But instead of crucifying this image of Jesus in your mind, an image that you created, let me encourage you to get to know the true Jesus through the Scriptures. Through the Scriptures, what we will find, what you will find is this Jesus who is someone that is gentle, gentle and lowly, someone who is Longing to redeem us from our slavery to sin. He's nothing like how the world paints him. 
is not merely a good moral teacher. He is God the Son, taking on flesh, crossing the divide between God and man, and come to die for the penalty of our sins. The wrath that we deserve in our sin, in our death, that wrath was laid upon Him so that we can taste and experience the salvation He brings. And this Jesus was pierced for our transgressions against God. This Jesus was crushed for our sinfulness. This Jesus took upon the punishment, the punishment that brought peace because He took that punishment. And as a result, we are peace with God. By His wounds, we are healed. That is the Jesus the Scriptures present to us. That is the Jesus that Christians throughout the centuries have worshipped. That is why we are here today on Good Friday to worship this Jesus, the one who died for our sins on the cross. And as Christians, let us come and worship and praise God. Praise God for this Christ. And if you are here, you are visiting. Maybe someone invited you and asked you to come. And you're not a Christian. I pray that you will come to know this Jesus through the Scriptures. Interact with this Jesus through the Scriptures. And it is our prayer that you'll come to know and worship Him as your Lord, as your Savior, as the one who came and gave His life for us. Let's stand and sing. God.
continues on his journey to the cross the book of Matthew chapter 27 reads as they were going out they met a man from Cyrene named Simon and they forced him to carry the cross they came to a place called Golgotha which means the place of the skull there they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said. But he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, 
I am the Son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with Him also heaped insults on Him. Jesus was led out to be crucified. And the place of Jesus' crucifixion is Golgotha, the place of the skull. It is a major road in those days, with many people traveling along that road every day. And Jesus was crucified there. His shame displayed for all to see. Now, you mustn't think of crucifixion like those small crosses that we can sometimes buy on Christ, uh, from Christian stores, where we have a piece of cloth conveniently covering the private parts of Jesus. In those days, prisoners and criminals, when they were crucified, they would have been crucified naked. Jesus would have been naked at the cross. And these soldiers, they continued their mockery by putting a sign above Jesus, that says, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Crucifixion really is designed to completely and absolutely destroy the dignity of the one crucified. Passerbys, they hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Well, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. Even the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the, the elders, they joined in the mockery. And they said, you know, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. And these are the cultural elites of their day. The religious leaders, the educated ones. Even they mocked Jesus on the cross. You see, throughout... Matthew's account of Jesus' life, he recorded many of his miracles. And we can read many of the healings that Jesus performed in Matthew's account. There was no doubt Jesus is able to save others. But for the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders, they are mocking Jesus because in their mind, they're thinking, well, he can save others, but he can't save himself. <laughs> what kind of useless savior is this? That's what they are thinking. But unbeknownst to them, they are speaking a profound truth. A truth that they are absolutely blind to recognize. Because if he were to save others, if he was to bring salvation to people, he cannot save himself. Because what he was going through is taking upon himself the pain the suffering, the judgment that we all, as sinners, we deserve. It is through His death, through His red crucifixion on the cross, that He saves others. In order to save others, He cannot save Himself. And so these people, as they pass by, these teachers of the law, this chief priests, these elders, they were witnesses to the greatest saving act in the history of the world. They had played an important part in the events leading up to it, but they were completely unaware of how significant that was. 
their sins are so deep that it blinded them to the truth. And these cultural elites, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders, they were supposed to be the wise ones. They were supposed to be the ones who, who knew the scriptures really well, supposed to be the one telling the people how to find salvation, to achieve salvation. They were supposed to, to be the ones doing it. But yet here they are mocking the very person who is able to save them. 2,000 years later, here at Subi Church, once again, we are confronted with Jesus on the cross in our reading. Will we be any different from these religious leaders, these cultural elites? Will 2,000 years of learning, of technological advancement, and hopefully wisdom, will we be any different from the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders? Our search for salvation has not stopped throughout the centuries. Mankind has not paused in its search for immortality, in its search for salvation. And mankind has tried to find salvation in anything and everything. And the search continues because there's nothing here on earth that's able to carry the weight of our expectations, able to carry the weight of the burden of our souls. But salvation is right here, right in front of us, in the person of Christ. It was right in front of the passers-by, right in front of the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law. Yet they mocked the very person who could save them. Where can we find salvation? Right in front of us, in the person of Christ. Through His death, through His crucifixion, He ended our search for salvation by providing us with meaning in our lives, blessing with, of peace with God, with eternal security by being with God. Our search is over. So let's stop searching elsewhere and turn our eyes upon Jesus. Look to Christ. And through Christ's suffering, through Christ's death on the cross, God is beckoning us. He is saying to us, come, come and believe in my Son. Come, come and see Christ on the cross. Come, come and receive this salvation that He has accomplished for you. Come, look to Christ. Please stay seated for the next song. The words will be up on the screen. Um, this is a time of reflection as we move into communion. the Lord upon the tree see the crown of thorns adorn the king who labors to breathe in agony come all sinner come and see 
what our God became to set us free. Come, O oh sinner, come and mourn, for He calls your sin His song. Do you feel the weight of justice? He suffers the wrath that you deserve. Come, O oh sinner, come and mourn. For He bears the curse for all you've done. A few summers ago, a family spent the day at the local pool. At the end of the day, they all piled into the car, and the father noticed that his youngest, three-year-old Alex, was not there. Where's Alex? I thought he was with you. I thought he was with you. In a panic, the father runs back into the pool complex, and to his horror, finds his son 
unconscious at the bottom of the pool. He dives in, he takes his son out and starts to do CPR on his little chest. No response. Continues doing CPR. (coughs) Cough, splutter. Against all odds, the son is revived. My boy, my boy. He's rushed to the emergency department, but he's given the all clear. He has to spend the night for observation. The next morning, the father notices on his son's face these small purple blotches like bruises all over his face. The doctor said this is a rare condition that occurs in cases of severe stress. What happens is that the blood vessels in the sweat glands burst and so sweat and blood mix together. The doctor said to the father, he said, I believe what happened was that just before your son fell unconscious at the bottom of the pool, he was crying out for you with such force that the blood vessels in his face burst. On the night before Jesus was crucified, he cried out for his father in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he cried out again and again. He was in severe emotional stress. And just like little Alex at the bottom of the pool, the blood vessels in Jesus' face burst and his sweat became like drops of blood. Jesus sees something so horrifying that it causes him to sweat drops of blood. What does he see? What does he see that horrifies him so? He sees a cup that he must drink. What cup? It's a cup that comes from deep within the Old Testament. It's a cup that represents the judgment of God. It's the cup of God's anger for sin. Those who sin against God and refuse to come back to God must face God's punishment, must drink from the cup of God's wrath. And Jesus sees it because he is about to drink from that cup. Jesus had spent his whole life heading towards this moment. But now, face to face with the cup, he feels its crushing weight on him. He knows the agony this cup will bring. The agony of the physical pain of crucifixion would be agony enough. Crucifixion was one of the most painful executions, form of execution in history. But more than that, Jesus knew that when he went on the cross, he would be bearing the judgment of God for the sins of the world. That Jesus knew he would be completely forsaken by his Father into the utter darkness of judgment where the blessings of God do not reach. He would be tasting hell on the cross. And this horrified him. The son had spent 
all of eternity in the bosom of the Father, in the closest and most intimate of eternal relationships. And so the prospect of his Father turning his face away from him in anger for just a moment, it repelled Jesus and his sweat became like drops of blood. But the incredible thing is this, and that's why we're here today. Jesus drank the cup. On the cross, he swallowed all of God's judgment. There is not one drop left for those who are in Christ. The only person in history who had no need to drink from the cup drank. The only person in all of history who had no need to taste God's judgment for sin because he was without sin, he tasted it. Jesus tasted hell on the cross so that you and I would not have to. And moments before Jesus experienced this in the Garden of Gethsemane, He was having his last supper with his disciples. And we read in Luke's account. And he took bread, he gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way after Supper, he took the cup. This cup is a new covenant in my blood, he said, which is poured out for you. He offers the cup of salvation, the cup of the forgiveness of sins. He is inviting us to drink from the heavenly cup in the heavenly court at the heavenly banquet with his Father forever. And the reason that you and I can drink from the cup of salvation is because Jesus has already drunk from the cup of God's wrath. And so as we come now to a time of communion, let us drink from the cup of salvation. Let us remember what Christ has done and achieved for us. And more than remember, let us participate by faith in the salvation that he offers So I invite you, the Lord's Supper is for all of those who call on Christ as their Savior, as their King. Today may be the first day that you've decided to do that, and we welcome you to come and take the bread and the cup. If you're not yet a believer, please just stay seated. No one will think anything less of you. But for those who are believers, we invite you to come. Take some bread, take the cup, hold on to them. In a few moments, we will take them together. I'll ask the first few rows to stand. There should be a little map in front of you telling you which way to go. And maybe use these few moments you have in your busy week to reflect on what the Lord Jesus has achieved for you.
Put your trust in the Lord Jesus, whose body was broken for you. Let us eat. We may drink from the cup of salvation because Jesus has drunk from the cup of wrath. Let us drink. Oh, praise the Lord. 
Thank you for joining us this morning. It's Friday, but Sunday is coming. And I'd just like to finish by inviting you, if you would like to know more about the Christian faith, uh, if you would like to establish yourself in the foundations of the Christian faith, then here at Subi Church, we'd love to help you with that. Uh, we have an, two courses coming up starting in a couple of weeks after the school holidays. One will be on a Sunday lunchtime upstairs in the church building, and one will be on a Tuesday evening, whichever is easier for you. Uh, there should be a, uh, an invitation within arm's length, and we'd invite you to take that. But if you would like to uh, know more, to establish, establish yourself in the faith, we'd love you to come along to one of these courses. You can look at the evidence yourself, come up with your own conclusions. Let me finish with a blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. Amen. I hope to see you Sunday.